holy cow that's awesome yeah. you <laughs> I, I like you did a fantastic job but i always love mural art like from like daycares you know when you <laughs> see it outside when you're driving past because it's always like this version of like garfield or big bird <laughs> they're always like proportions are like they're like you, you really couldn't find a better person to try and draw the cartoon character like you could basically trace it like it's not super hard but there's always like some, some broke ass elmo or <laughs> or characters that shouldn't exist together you know it'll be you know it'll be like bugs bunny and like you know shrek or whatever and <laughs> it's like oh what deviant art massacre is this <laughs> yeah like tweety and, and snoopy together yeah and, like... and spongebob and like all the other <laughs> characters it's like oh all right <laughs> those are oh those are always fantastic anyway i should leave this part in so <laughs> sure <laughs> <laughs> anyway all right uh here we go with the real episode, let me unfog my glasses. Apparently, I laughed so much I fogged my glasses up. That's how powerful my breath is today. All right. <laughs> All right, guys. Welcome back to Are You Afraid of D's, the only show that's probably done two separate episodes on Keel's books. I don't know. I listen to a lot. I don't think anyone's done that. And that's probably for a good reason. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Maggie, where's your head at? How you doing? What's new? Oh, gosh. You know, not too much is new. It's been a crazy week or month for me because I'm working on a mural at work. And it was kind of like if you kept the intro, then people probably got a little bit of a snapshot of that. But like, I I don't know, it's it's taking up a good amount of time. But I think I'll be done this week. So I'll have some free time again. How about you? What are you up to? I am also painting, but mostly my Warhammer models. I'm blowing through my stockpile of lizard men that I got for my birthday um and uh writing this episode working on the next uh watching fall of the house of usher which i was thoroughly disappointed in i'm a big mike flanagan fan and uh i did not care for it i don't know if you've watched any of it yet no i did not all i watched was midnight mass uh which is fantastic and that was the last good thing he did unfortunately uh, Midnight Club, the one they did after that, is pretty throwawayable. Uh, and Fall of House Usher, I'll just, since you haven't watched it yet, I'll just keep silent on it. But uh, it was, it's pretty boring. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of boring TV, unfortunately. I, I can't say I've seen. Actually, you know what was good? Uh, if you get a chance, watch Totally Killer. Uh, I think it's actually Amazon, though. Um, with Kiernan Shipka from Sabrina. It's a time travel slasher movie. It's very kitschy, but it's very good. Enjoyed that a ton. Out of all the new things I've seen, like horror movie-wise for this Halloween, that's the one that's actually been good. Oh, good to know. Definitely check that out. But we're not uh, here to talk about good horror movies today. We're here to talk about crazy theorist books. So are you ready for another deep dive into the Swedenborgian collective consciousness of John Keel? Well, too bad because I read <laughs> another one of his books. That's the one we're doing the episode on today. We're talking about Keel's 1971 book, Our Haunted Planet. And no, it's not about ghost celebrities of planet Hollywood. It's a very different planet. 
I wrote <laughs> maybe take maybe take this joke out, but clearly I left it in. Anyway, so <laughs> if you remember John Keel, famous paranormal researcher, author, and investigator who's delving into the strange phenomena of the Mothman incident and Point Pleasant, and it bought him a one-way ticket down a rabbit hole of men in black, aliens, psychic abilities, monsters from other dimensions, strange mirror world of our own inhabited by beings called ultra-terrestrials who have perplexed, guided, called mankind by their pervasive influence since time in memoriam and the book we're basing today's show off was actually written before the eighth tower the book we previously covered so long ago the eighth tower being written in 1975 the mothman chronicles which is his famous book uh, but also in the same year and our haunted planet as i said was written in 1971 uh, I think you will find it a more lucid and less extravagant collection of catalog phenomenon from a, a little less frazzled and spiritually exhausted Keel. Um, now, in the Eighth Tower, uh, Keel spoke of a fabled set of seven towers somewhere in the East, from which mysteriously, potentially evil, orders of man could send out signals to influence and control mankind in dubious ways. And he then theorized that one final eighth tower must exist, which is controlled by the ultra-terrestrials. Now, who are the ultra-terrestrials? They are paranormal phenomenon from ghosts to aliens to Bigfoot wrapped into one species of hyper-intelligent dimension-crossing beings that are responsible for shaping or guiding humankind, and they can manifest in different and mysterious ways. But... To what end do their designs for us hold? And furthermore, can they be called alien if they're actually from this earth and exist within this reality? Are we the aliens? Is this reality we live in real? Is Bigfoot like the alien's bodyguard, like Chewbacca and the Wookiees? Why do they get rid of tan M&Ms? What about buttered sausage? Maggie, all these questions we're going to answer today. Buttered sausage, especially the mystery of it. <laughs> I had that sound clip stuck in my head of Gary Busey talking about buttered sausage. What about buttered <laughs> sausage? What does it do? Why does it do that? Get it out of my face. One thing I say for the listeners and everyone else, look at this through the lens of the time in which it was made. It's very important for a lot of these books. For the youngins, the 1970s did not have the internet as we know it, didn't have Google, didn't have cell phones, and a lot of science we consider common knowledge wasn't back then. So let's just dive right into chapter one of our haunted planet subtitled, You Can't Get There From Here. In this intro, Keel begins his discussion with the notion of two separate histories, Maggie. The one we know, and of course, the real one. The real history is of a secret, mythical, advanced progenitor race here on Earth. One that built massive stone mounds and cities even. All these methods they used to make them have been lost to time. And our ancestors, the cavemen, tried to learn from them, but they could never really duplicate them. Over time, all the advancements this secret race made were lost, only to be rediscovered by modern man and hidden for the very existence would have us rewrite history. Now, Maggie, have you kind of heard of this theory before? Yeah, and like... I think that there was even like science fiction movies about this where there's like a master progenitor alien race that came and like left some little little nuggets to ponder, some advanced technology that like maybe precipitated like extraordinary like cognitive development in humans, right? Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the Smithsonian hides any uh, relics or giant bones that they find, so we don't have to rewrite the history books. Oh yeah, well yeah, it's it's a really good way to like blame that there's just like a large like instant like insidious <laughs> organization that's like hiding the truth from us, and that's why there's not like overt evidence everywhere of something so big. But you have to think I, about like the insane amount of people that would have to like be all working together to do this. And like, I think about how like even a group of like 30 coworkers at work and sometimes like the ass falls off completely of what we're doing. And I'm like, I cannot imagine the hundreds and hundreds of people seamlessly working in the shadows together. Like this is uh, wow, I've never even heard of such teamwork. You know, the one instance I can cite of people keeping something a total secret that I'm still amazed by to this day was of Baby Yoda. There was not a single piece of merchandise, obviously. No one talked about it. Never heard any rumors about it. So the crew that worked on Mandalorian Season 1 and all the people that were involved in it, very, very good job. Props. You kept Baby Yoda a secret, and it was amazing. So if they could keep Baby Yoda a secret... Maggie, what if the crew of Mandalorian could keep our secret history, right? Maybe it's made of people like that. But one item that made it past the Smithsonian Sensor Squad is an item called the Puri Rays Maps. Now, these were originally found in the former Imperial Palace of the Sultan of Constantinople in 1921, 1929. Wow, that's <laughs> I just didn't read that at all. <laughs> whatever in the 20s <laughs> yeah there was a big difference in those eight <laughs> years uh these maps dated back to it was like a time i read on another episode i was re- like i think it was the grease factory i was like people went there for murder and it wasn't it was like <laughs> suicide and i just read something completely fucking different and i was just like wait no they didn't they didn't go there for murder they came there to kill themselves sorry Complete different word, complete different connotation. I don't know. My brain's fucking broke. Anyway, these maps dated back to 1513 AD and would end up in the archives of Washington, D.C. of all places. And it was there by chance that the Captain Arlington H. Malley would rediscover these maps in the Library of Congress and reevaluate them. And what he noticed was astounding. Uh, These maps were incredibly detailed with a knowledge that could not possibly have been made by known explorers and cartographers. Poor Ahemplo, Antarctica, which was not even discovered until 7073, was fully explored by the 1950s. It was shown in brilliant detail and accuracy in its mountain ranges and sites, but most astounding was the thing that these maps also outlined glaciers and landmasses thought to have existed in the Ice Age. So, who could have made this map? Who would have the knowledge and means to make such a detailed depiction of the frozen north so long ago? Now, Keel does not mention that Piri Reyes was a real person, uh, but he was. He was an admiral and a cartographer from the Ottoman Empire, to which this map is attributed to. Or... He, the other thing he doesn't mention is that Mallory and Charles Hapgood, who's a historian who helped bring attention to this map and this ancient civilization theory in his book, Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, they had sensationalized and misread the alignment of Ice Age periods and showed ice in Antarctica where there wasn't ice. I'll be honest, I don't follow this argument because, I mean, 
I think they mean the Ice Age ice. There wasn't ice. Because Wiki keeps saying there hasn't been ice in Antarctica since 10 million years ago. Which, Maggie, led me to Google, is there ice in Antarctica? And I felt really <laughs> fucking dumb, to be honest, because I was so confused. But yes, there is ice in Antarctica, but it's shrinking. And there's currently 30 million cubic kilometers, which is 7.2 million cubic miles, numbers I don't even know what they mean, of ice, and I forgot the point I was even trying to make, so whatever. Uh, most experts believe this ancient civilization theory of how the maps were made is a crackpot theory because of ice, I guess. Could Piri have been given information or copied information from another source? Keel says yes. Okay. So, uh, Keel then brings into question the observance of UFOs, strange lights in the sky, and other aerial throughout history. This is a topic I'm sure everyone is familiar with because of ancient aliens and the TV shows exploring it. However, in the 70s, this was probably quite the wild idea that ancient gods primitive mankind was describing could be these aliens or an ancient race of humans was just mind-blowing, but it made sense in a lot of ways. Now, here, Kiel introduces the protagonist, protagonist, maybe, of our book, The WOW Organization. Now, taken as an example from H.G. Wells' Things to Come, which is a dystopian sci-fi where war has ravaged the world, and a group of scientists and other thinkers band together to form Wings Over the World, acronymed as WOW, to sort of help restore the planet by flying over it and lending aid wherever they can. Uh, Kiel believes this wow sort of organization already exists in the real world, and it was begun by this ancient progenitor race to help us advance. They helped us find the sacred geometry to build pyramids, they flew over the earth to make the Piri Rays maps, they handed the Mormon people the Golden Leona compass that helped divine the hidden 2,000-year history of the Americas. This, you can see, is the beginnings of the ultra-terrestrial theories and the panopticon to which the human race is subjugated. So, that's chapter one. What do you think about the maps being made by other people? Or do you God, think it was I, just made by Mr. Piri Rees? I mean, yeah, maybe. It's hard to... I mean, I don't know. I'm very skeptical that someone in the 1500s would have made maps that accurately represented Antarctica. But who knows? Like, yeah. I guess I don't have the data. I don't have that information. So I'll I'll have an open mind. Let's see how he argues this. <laughs> well, chapter two deals more with ancient civilizations. Now, Maggie, if I asked you what the Mediterranean, the west of Azores, south of Azores, the Caribbean, the west coast of South America, the east coast of South America, the North Pacific, the South Pacific, the coast of Florida, and the Indian Ocean all have in common, what would you say? I mean, it's water. not the obvious answer. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, yes, it is. They all have water, unlike Antarctica that has no ice. But, Maggie, if you said the places that underwater explorers have claimed to found pieces of Atlantis, you'd be correct. Really? Now, it seems places of this fabled civilization can be pretty much found all over the globe. Now, Atlantis has many myths, as you know. Some say it was part of the ancient Greek world, and it was its own society on a giant island which sunk underneath their hubris. Some tales say Atlantis was always underwater, and it was like a kingdom for underwater people. But how or when did these myths actually start? 
Well, Maggie, it's a funny story. And Keel attributes our friendly overseers at WOW for planting the seeds. Now, Plato, the famous one from Greek philosophy, talks about Atlantis of his works, which he states he heard from a man named Critias, who heard for the story from his great-grandfather, Dropides, who heard that story from a sage named Solon, who heard it from an Egyptian priest. So that's quite the grapevine, wouldn't you say, Maggie? Yeah, but one second. Is it Dropides nuts? <laughs> <laughs> Dropides nuts. Well, now he is. I'm writing that in here. <laughs> Forever known. Anyway, he dropped the D story onto uh, Plato. Well, despite this elongated game of telephone, it would not stop Atlantis stands and supporters and truthers from writing all sorts of books, consulting mediums, Ouija boards, and other spiritual guides who claimed they could communicate with lost spirits of people or the peoples that lived in Atlantis. Now, Keel says a great amount of people even claim to see Atlanteans as spirits, and they're dressed in colorful robes and headdresses, and they're importing knowledge to their viewers about lost history, people who then go on to write their own Atlantis fan fiction. So, <laughs> what I see here as I read Keel's writing that's different from his last books, as he is presenting things objectively and not trying to convince the reader of any of these incidents. He's presenting what people have said and wrote and are putting into the context of his theory. He's not fully drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, at this point, merely observing and presenting. He does not sound as fanatical or driven to a flight of fancy. Uh, on the contrary, if anything, he seems a little bit more skeptical. Uh, during oh. these chapters. So Keel also notes uh, the similarities between folks who claim to commune with extraterrestrial spirits or beings, uh, the being imparting knowledge or wisdom or past knowledge of their faraway civilization. Now, is this the work of a trickster type spirit? Uh, is this a means to which we all as humans come to make or understand myths? Or is this the WOW organization's attempt to steer us off the path of true history of the world by confusing us with false ones and flights of fairy tale fantasy? God, why did I write all that alliteration? I'm yeah. so stupid. I can't stand how I write sometimes. So Keel also draws the relation of these Atlantean spirits to ancient elementals and our friends, the good people. That's right, Maggie, fairy folk who would be known to mesmerize humans with tales of their foreign land and all the magical kingdoms and the realms between underground palaces and mounds and barrels. They all seem to share some common mythology, but in different clothing. Now, several other interesting beings he touches on are spirit guides coming to us as familiar figures we may know, such as Abraham Lincoln, the idea what? of doppelgangers. <laughs> Apparently, people have been visited by spirit Abraham Lincoln before, and he tells them ancient knowledge. Um, <laughs> and also the idea of doppelgangers, beings who pose as people who are still alive. And Daros, short for detrimental robots, I don't understand that one, who at the time in the 1950s were a very popular sci-fi myth. Oh, gosh, weird. 
um, they're sort of like underground creatures who had their own civilizations deep near the core of the world, and they were jealous of us surface dwellers. And if you listen to my last little campfire special, part two, I snuck in a little dramatic paraphrase reading from one of my favorite Strange Matter books, which is in fact about Darrow's. But in that story, they're a little bit more like blob creatures. So, uh, uh I was writing a dread campaign about that book, which came out really great, but I used to listen to that audiobook of this book and over and over and when I was little, I could probably recite the whole thing if I had a gun to my head. Anyways, uh, Swedenborg wrote about elementals and trickster spirits, and here is a neat little excerpt Keel included uh, that is from Mr. Swedenborg. When spirits begin to speak with a man, he must be aware that he believe nothing that they say. For nearly everything they say is fabricated by them, and they lie. For if they are permitted to narrate anything, as what heaven is, and how so many lies that a man would be astonished, this they would do with solemn affirmation, wherefore men must beware and not believe them. Sorry, I had to sound that out because it's like written like a Bible passage. Um, <laughs> Keel switches focus to alien spirits or guides uh, one of a tale of encounters with beings from a planet between Mars and Jupiter called Maldek, or sometimes it's called Clarion, or dozens of other names. And the spirits of this planet have appeared to uh, spiritualists before warning of their doomed planet, which they blew up experimenting with atom bombs or something. Now, Keel states, it may be that elementals are actually a part of the human psyche and that they have been presenting some scrambled racial memory of the distant past. Like Garden of Eden, Atlantis may be nothing more than an allegory designed to give us a clue about our own history. So I think that's maybe the most interesting idea and maybe the most truthful one, because as we all kind of know, a lot of monsters and myths have some sort of root in something that happened long ago or is an ex explanation um, for a certain kind of phenomenon or a warning, something in our racial memory, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Chapter three, how did they make them pyramids? Now, in this chapter, Keel discusses the lifelong question that's kept History Channel and YouTube afloat from, from boomer viewership for years. <laughs> how the heck did they make all those damn pyramids, Maggie? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> With just rafts Aliens? and slaves? What the heck do the pyramids really represent? Well, Keel claims it was probably our friends at WOW, and that clearly the answer was levitation. So most blocks in the pyramids were five tons. So that means the rafts they floated them on had to displace five tons of water or they would sink. Now, we've never found any papyrus blueprints of how they managed to configure all these stone slabs so securely that even a piece of paper could be slit between them. Keel <laughs> inadvertently lends the idea that perhaps this is a lot of lost technology or just things people knew in the past that have been lost to time. And personally, I don't think that's such a crazy notion. I think people in the past were much more in tune with their surroundings and nature, and they looked at the world in a different way because they were not bombarded with the same problems we have or the reliance on our futuristic technology. Uh, techniques were passed down orally and not really typed down, so there's no how-to wiki page on how to build the pyramid, right? So yeah, good point. Keel 
also discusses the belief in even more hidden chambers within the pyramid that might actually have some evidence, some note, some insight into how they were built, or an inclination to whether we had quote-unquote help making them. Some hidden secret message from WOW? Well, Maggie, guess what happened earlier this year in April? This year? This year in April. What happened? Wow came out publicly, but no one no. cared. No, wait, this is uh, this is like the alien guy, right? Like the then wasn't that this year? Like the military guy that's saying that the, that he's like UFO witness related to pyramids and hidden oh. chambers that Keel proposed that there might be even more. They found a new thirty foot long hidden chamber using cosmic ray muon detectors this year in April inside the Great Pyramid. And the scientists believe that there may be more like this inside. Now, I don't know what cosmic ray muon detectors do, but through context, it seems close to thermography. So it's a way to look into the pyramids without digging and destroying the structure. Uh, So what is this chamber? Well, nothing. Uh, They think it was a load-bearing passage. So they didn't find any ancient Egyptian horrors. However, uh, funny to think that 2023, we're still finding new passages in the Great Pyramid because of our technology. So um, the pyramids also represent just one of the world's strange structures that we're not 100% clear on how it was made. So Kiel cites the Plain of Jars in Laos, which harbors over 90 sites of giant jars, some big that six men into uh you like this one maggie giant stone balls that have been found in (laughs) costa rica (laughs) oh yeah and of course d's so who (laughs) made d's and why uh bigfoot myths are abundant in almost every culture but so are myths of giants and a race of huge people that live side by side with us may and may have also been at war with us. Uh, Were they used as labor to make these giant structures when they weren't busy killing and eating us? There's so many theories, so little evidence as always. And the conversation drifts into theories about runes and pteroglyphs, cursed sites, phantom spirits drawn to them, Chinese dragons. Uh Oh, it's like the keel tangent mobile is cranking up again. Time for chapter four, Maggie. Tech titties, tech tights. I'm still not sure how that. I'm not sure how that word is pronounced. But what the heck is a tech tight, Maggie? Well, it's a bizarre formation of glass found on Earth, and scientists are not quite sure what they are. But the test blast of the atomic bomb was found to also create them. Now, what scientists propose is that tech tights are from meteors that crashed to Earth, and they vaporize. Um, the meteors are vaporized by our atmosphere upon entry and they melt into glass upon hitting earth. And if you Google pictures of these tech titties, they look like fossilized dog poop to me, but they uh, are claimed to have extraordinary properties and possibly allow communication with alien entities. So the next time you're strolling in your neighborhood, you see something that looks like a piece of dog poo you might want to pick it up to check to see if it's a tech tight and see if you can talk to any aliens through it. All right. Put it to your ear. Put it to your ear. You won't look weird at all. Uh, <laughs> it makes total sense. Hello. Hello, aliens. Are you there? 
Now, the rest <laughs> of this chapter is dedicated to ramblings about doomed cities that have been hit with meteors, including Baalbek in Lebanon, which was dedicated to Baal, the sun god. Now, I don't know. Baal is the god of destruction in Diablo lore. So this actually has a lot of interesting lore built in uh, this, this city. It was supposedly built by Jin, but it's uh, too dense to cover here. But it is a cool topic, so I'll put that one on the back burner for now. We're going to go over to Chapter 5. Don't lose heart, Maggie. There's only 11 more chapters. And this is Keel Stonehenge chapter. And he's writing off the coattails of, well, did WoW make it with levitation and UFOs? Because experts like astronomer Gerald S. Hawkins in his book, Stonehenge Decoded, believe it took 1.5 million labor days over 10 generations to move all that shit and declinate all the astronomical patterns it's meant to. That's an insane amount of planning and labor for peoples of that time, right? True, and it has nothing to do with, like, survival or anything useful, like, most likely, right? Like, I mean, they'd have to toil day and night just to get food and make clothes and stuff, so that's crazy to invest so much time in something like that. Yeah, I think the the other struggle people don't think about while you're making these giant things like you pointed out like people like still need to be supplied they need food they need to be sheltered they have to be taken care of like it's a huge friggin' project like it's not like they rolled the the stones up there one day and it was like yep this is a good spot um <laughs> so you know there's no hidden note why people made this we just we don't know and there's theories but you know nothing's been proven very concrete so I will note the abundance of Keel noting real people with real books in this book is much more convincing than his citation in the Eighth Tower, where we usually end up with vagities, some scientists, some research, and they end right. up being like strange revisionists or completely made up characters from literature. Here, Keel clearly is stating fact from fiction. So, now, 20 miles from Stonehenge, another marvel was being made. The Mammoth Mound at Silbury. Have you ever heard of this Mammoth Mound, Maggie? No, what? I, or have something described oh. as being oh. a Mammoth Mound? Have you ever been inside <laughs> a Mammoth Mound? Well, it sounds <laughs> wild, but I haven't. Maggie, mound is slang for, you know. Oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, she's not getting the joke. No, Mammoth Mounds. That is so funny. I was thinking of the candy at some point. I was like, Mounds candy. And I was like, damn, that would hit right now. I would love that. <laughs> big old mound in my mouth would hit right now. Well, oh, my God. Anyway. Hunger, like, finally, like, outweighed horniness in my mind. This is like, I should just, like, highlight this day on my calendar. <laughs> so, um. Keel brings up the fairy question again. If this wasn't made by Britons, or was it made by the she? Uh, so we have tons of mammoth mounds here in America, Maggie. Native American mammoth mounds all have legends accompanying them as well. And most are burial. Most of the stories deal with burial rites or more terroglyphs of animals when seen from above. So is there an alien fairy connection between the strange lights being seen near these mounds? And what about the Nazca lines and crop circles? What about Easter Island and their giant heads known as Ahu? Did you know the Ahu used to wear giant hats called pukoas made of giant 
Why did these statues have hats? Where did the giant stone hats go? Did the red-haired mummy giants of Lovecock Cave in Nevada take them? Atlantislaur also came to red-haired animalistic giants that behave like traditional vampires. Did they invade Easter Island from South America? All of these questions I have, but no answers and as you can see this chapter starts out grounded then starts vomiting a host of subsidiary questions and connections like that meme of charlie day with the conspiracy board oh my gosh so this is literally you didn't make this up he is posturing these things these are this is a summarization of like 20 pages oh what my god he is like <laughs> leaping all over the place and it and it's almost farcical that's amazing yep it, it's starting up so now we're going to chapter six Lost Cities, Timbuktu, Angkor Wat, Tiwanaku, Skaskashwaman. I don't know if that's how that's said. Hidden Cities, only recent accessible by modern researchers. More giant blocks. Ice Age cycles on Uranus being every 21.5 years. This chapter is mostly skippable. And looking back to me, I think a lot of the wonder of this chapter is still from a viewpoint of people not knowing a lot about their world. They didn't have Google, like me, to look up pictures of all these places and read readily about their history. They're amazing to marvel at, but imagine, aside from books like this and magazines, there wasn't a lot of media to satisfy the curiosity of someone who had the interest in ancient cultures. So I think that's why he brings up so many different things, because there's so many different ideas, and he's just trying to cram it all into one, you know, 250-page book. So maybe reading about one thing might give you interest in reading the next book or researching that topic. So anyway, uh, chapter seven, Scientist in Collision, 1950s bestseller, Worlds in Collision by Russian psychoanalyst, blah, blah by Russian psychoanalyst, Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky. Note, he's just a psychoanalyst. Proposed that perhaps planet Venus was a comet hurled out of the planet Jupiter. Now, I'm not a science guy, but other science guys of the time vehemently, vehemently, vehemently denounced this theory and Velofsky's work, calling it pseudoscience. Now, here's a scathing review from contemporary Martin Gardner. He wrote, Dr. Velikovsky is an almost perfect textbook example of the pseudoscientist, self-taught in the subjects about which he does most of his speculation, working in total isolation from fellow scientists, motivated, <laughs> motivated by a strong compulsion to defend dogmas held for other than scientific reasons, and with an unshakable conviction in the revolutionary value of his work and the blindness of his critics. Ouch! Take that, Ooh, Dr. Velikovsky. Dragged him. <laughs> now, Kiel does not really go into why Velikovsky made this theory. Aside from that, he was obliged to invent new theories based upon the flimsy, by scientific standards, evidence of mythology. Uh, this was not his only catastrophist theory. There are plenty, and they're too dense to warrant a discussion without losing brain cells. But just to list a few from Wikipedia, some of Velikovsky's specific postulated catastrophes include the tentative suggestion that Earth had once been a satellite of a proto-Saturn body before its current solar orbit. Uh, the deluge, Noah's flood, had been caused by proto-Saturn entering a Nova state and ejecting much of its mass into space. A uh, suggestion that the planet Mercury was involved in the Tower of Babel catastrophe. Uh, periodic close contacts with a cometary Venus, which had been ejected from Jupiter, as we said. Uh, he takes a lot of these 
theories from things written in the Bible, periodic close contacts with Mars that have caused havoc in the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, and my favorite, the red spot on Jupiter being an alien spaceship. Uh, oh my so god. What's, <laughs> what's important to understand contextually about the popularity of Venus uh, in this regard is that many people who claim to have had contact from alien life record them being from Venus, also known as Venusians at, uh, in this time period and in the 1950s. So to me, the point Keel is trying to make here uh, with this example of dubious work is that although some of these writers make controversial claims, it other scientists to do some research to find them wrong, but end up looking into other things they may have not thought probable, which in itself could be seen as a merit because science are always, scientists always question everything, right? So sure. I think that's the point he's trying to make. All right. Something more interesting. Chapter eight, mimicry. Maggie, have you ever heard of the uncanny valley? Yes. I Is have. it near the mammoth mounds? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah, anatomically, I feel like if there's already a mound, I don't know what the valley would be. Is that the butt crack? <laughs> Supernatural butt crack. Um, so, Maggie, what do you understand the uncanny valley to be? So, I. I this is just off the top of my head, but it's like when something is just kind of like unusual like it, it's trying to look human or maybe like something but there's just something off and you can't place it kind of like like a thing that comes to mind is like the behavior of the stepford wise for example like it just creates this uncanny valley or like when they try to make um like cgi faces in in certain um movies it's just something's off with it like like early technology when they de-aged people like something was off and like that's that's how I would put it if I had to try to define uncanny valley. Yes, very good explanation. So it's believed that these survival instincts were embedded in us at an early stage of our evolution in order to distinguish things such as dead bodies from ourselves. But what if there was another reason for our primal fear? What if there was a creature that could disguise itself as one of us? And the only way we could tell was by one tiny flaw, one small detail that made a second guess, one strange feature that gave away the hidden monster and kept us from becoming its next meal. Now, the animal world has all sorts of creatures that mimic other life. Bugs that mimic leaves or twigs, snakes and reptiles that mimic more poisonous cousins, and still other insects that can mimic predators like scorpions. But what about creatures that could mimic humans? Keel states the tales of angels and demons are some of the first instances of humans recollecting human mimicry. Even the Bible warns about mimics in human form, usually appearing in threes. It says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware, in Hebrews 13.2. Often in groups of three, cloaked in black robes sometimes with a slightly androgynous or otherworldly or exotic look to them, what do these mimics want with humanity? Well, here we get into some deep-ass lore. Ready for the point in the book where we make the keel plunge, Maggie? Well, this oh, is yeah. it. If it, hasn't, if it hasn't done already with that last chapter. Now, in modern day, Keel and many other researchers have defined these beings as mysterious men in black. Are they government agents? 
or extraterrestrial silencers who bully and terrorize UFO researchers into quitting their research or delving deeper. Now, Keel further states that they could be agents of the devil and that they are tied to certain supernatural sites on the earth that they essentially haunt. Now, what are they guarding? UFO researchers say hidden spaceports to other planets. Occultists say gateways to other dimensions. Now, periodically, all hell breaks loose in one of these weak points, and we get a flap of some sort of phenomenon from Mothman to UFOs to poltergeists to mass madness in people. Now, Keel goes on to cite other information issues with these entities, particularly with Venusians being anti-Semitic and problematic messages that seem to be of a little bit more earthly agenda. Well, I'm not racist. The alien told me to be racist. Yeah, sure, buddy. So <laughs> phantom vehicles and UFOs round out this chapter with a good summarization passage I'll recount here. Now, it says one basic fact should be obvious from the foregoing. These entities and things are not necessarily from some other planet. They are actually closely tied to the human race, are a part of our immediate environment in some unfathomable fashion, and to a very large extent are primarily concerned with misleading us, misinforming us, and playing games with us. So it seems here Keel pivots on WoW being bringers of knowledge and settles more into ideologies presented in the Eighth Tower about the ultra-terrestrials being enigmatic and possibly malicious overseers. That's chapter 8. On to chapter 9. More men in black. In this chapter, Keel returns to a topic he has had maybe the most actual experience with, which is men in black encounters. Now, he recounts a litany of stories of incidents with men dressed all in black driving phantom Cadillacs who show up to question and threaten people who have seen UFOs or who are researching them. Uh, do they work for the government? Are they trying to silence those who would bring light upon our alien visitors? Or are they aliens themselves? In 1947, Kenneth Arnold was commissioned by Amazing Stories magazine, which is actually was here in Chicago, to research the Maury Island UFO incident in which a donut-shaped object was reported flying around Tacoma Harbor, raining slag and poo-poo onto surrounding boats, killing a dog and injuring a young child. Now, day two into his investigation, he was approached by a dark man driving a 1947 Buick who pressed him into stopping his investigation. And he recited this, I'm sorry, this, this man, this dark man driving the Buick recited the incident and timeline of the event as if he had been there. And it thoroughly spooked Arnold out, who then just gave up on the story. The thing is that those who claimed to see these UFOs around Tacoma Harbor and Mount Rainer did not come public with the story until three days later. So mm -hmm. the more strange thing is that this is widely believed to be a hoax perpetrated to sell the story to several magazines. But I guess the good part is a dog was not hurt. So... <laughs> most, of these, <laughs> most of these men in black stories follow the same pattern. So to me, if you've read one, you've kind of read them all. However, some are so fantastical that they are at least exciting to read. Like UFOologist pioneer Albert K. Bender, who also claims to have shut down his organization of the International Flying Saucer Bureau in 1953 because of being terrorized by three, quote, dark skin oriental looking men in black. Sheesh. Anyways, much of his theory 
experiences were published in another guy's book, but 10 years later, he finally came out with his version in which he claims that he had been visited by dark-skinned gentlemen with glowing eyes who materialized and dematerialized in his own apartment. And they also took him to a UFO base in Antarctica. And maybe we can ask him if there's fucking ice there. But the aliens <laughs> told him that UFOs were here to collect a valuable element from the Earth's oceans for a secret project of theirs, and they would be finished by 1960s, at which point they would leave and he could write all about his experiences freely. Very cool. Chapter 10, Contactees. Keel builds upon the contactee phenomenon chapter. I'll be honest, this to me, it seems to be the point of his book where he just loses me. And there's no quicker way to lose me than to start talking about Mormons, Maggie, which is how <laughs> this chapter starts out. So did you know that sometime around 421 AD, a group of artisans crafted a set of tablets and buried them near what is Manchester, New York, only to be found by eight-year-old John Smith in 1821. And John was beset by a being of, quote, most exquisite whiteness and being a pure light who told him his name was Moroni and he was a messenger from God. And he told John where the magic tablets and plates full of hidden wisdom and gospel were located. And John dug them up and he was about to translate them with a magic lens with no formal training. And guess what happened to plates after he translated them, Maggie? They did disappeared but nine of his friends signed an affidavit saying they actually did see them so it's all good and by 1830 the book of mormon the secret history of north america was published and south park had material for years and years to come <laughs> but is this any less crazy than most of our tried and true religions an origin nope. story of a prophet being struck with a revelation or secret gospels from god is fairly prevalent in pretty much all our religion origin stories so one interesting quote i'll include here keel says scientists and doctors have examined people claiming visions and visits with ultraterrestrials and have been puzzled by their normality in many cases, participants seem too unintelligent, unimaginative, uneducated, <laughs> and too sincere to simply invent the complicated and profusely detailed stories they relate. Wow! Keel's saying y'all too dumb to make up the stories you made up. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, you're just an idiot. There's no way you could make something <laughs> this up. You're way too stupid to make this amazing story. This must be true. So examples of this complicated and detailed stories include student of alchemy, Cyrus Teed, who said a beautiful female materialized in his laboratory and informed him of his past incarnations, which were all mighty kings and rulers. This entity mm -hmm. gave him a detailed history of the cosmos, and he began to write pamphlets, which he would turn his, to his profitable Koreshian cult. The mighty Koresh was struck down in an altercation with a sheriff in 1908 and died from his entries, but promised to return from the grave. Guess what, Maggie? He did not. So, oh, my God. What about... I, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. I, You know, you know they're probably going to be a kook when it starts with student of alchemy. It's just like, yep. You, you know... <laughs> <laughs> you know this guy's gonna have a wacky fucking story yep I know. that's my my favorite part all his past incarnations which were all mighty kings and rulers of course oh yeah with, i grinned with, <laughs> with huge dicks yes yes uh -huh. your and dick was not as small them. as it is <laughs> your dick was mighty and mastodonic it was huge but it's been whittled away by time <laughs> <laughs> You were, you were made this incarnation to stay humble, to remind right, you. Right, yeah, stay humble, king. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, uh, another one, he example of these uh, complicated and detailed stories from contactees is Helen Smith, who was visited by the dark and handsome Astane, who may have been a Martian, visited blue pink lakes on the surface of Mars and observed self-propelled gas lantern shaped vehicles on the surface of Mars in her vision slash hallucinations. She eventually learned to automatic write Martian and she translated it into French as one does. And th this section <laughs> just goes on and on with more of these contactees and frankly, sorry, they're crackpots. But uh, I do think it's interesting that like a lot of these stories, it's like someone imagining their waifu is in an alien right it's like the style the stories the guys told like, oh there's this beautiful big tittied women and like women are like oh is this beautiful dark handsome stranger that was only interested in me and like they're all just so funny and like atypical so but now we have body pillows so we don't have to make up boyfriends and girlfriends i guess no now we can talk to chad gpt yeah <laughs> <laughs> you have entered chat gpt horny version um so uh now maggie we're gonna go to chapter 11 which i, I feel is the best chapter uh and i think it's how oh. he should have ended the book but he didn't so chapter 11 the serpent men welcome Ooh. to the high fantasy portion of a john keel book as we dig into the origins of the planet and the serpent men versus the ultra terrestrials you ready maggie so yeah one common idea theory maybe it's lore, I don't know what you want to call it, is that we were seated on Earth. Meaning no one's actually from here, but aliens planted us here as an experiment, or we from the future planted ourselves here, or angels and demons planted us here. I mean, literally pick your what? fantasy game mythology. Right, we from the future made us, but how yeah. did we become that future? What? Because time is not linear all right yeah. i don't know this is basically <laughs> like that's basically a story of like diablo like angels and demons fucking and making us i don't know man so keel digs into british scholar brinsley lepore trench i swear to god with these fucking names maggie no one has a normal name uh who, who wrote two <laughs> seminal books on ancient scriptures that uh he was has studied that I just, where are all these ancient scripture peoples are studying? Like, they're just hanging out for all to read at the Library of Congress next to the Puri-Rees maps. Like, I love when they describe some as like, they studied these ancient scriptures. Like, the fuck where? Where were they? How did they have them? Yeah, this is before the internet even. Like, how did you even know that there is something to study? Why like, would you just show up it? at yeah, like, how would this bumpkin be like, hey, like, I'm showing up at the library. I need you to show me, like, the Forbidden Scrolls. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, the librarian's like, yep, come on. You got a forbidden scroll section in this library, or it's like the same with like at least John Smith was like, well, I found him in the ground and then they disappeared. I don't know what happened. The angel took him back because I already had all the knowledge from my magic lens that I also don't have. So, you know, at least he wrote <laughs> his catch-alls into his fucking story. Anyway. In Brinsley Lepore Trench's books, The Sky People and Men Among Mankind, he writes about two superior races, well, superior to us, the Serpent Men, which are a race of beings descended from devils and demons and evil spirits who wish to control mankind, and the Ultra Terrestrials, 
the good guys? Question mark. I don't know. They're tall, beautiful, godlike beings from another dimension who see our planet and try to guide us. Oh, by the way, at this point, we're Neanderthals. So the Uts, the UTs, I don't know how I wanted to paraphrase that. The UTs try to use their frequencies to guide us on the right path. That's the other thing I don't understand. Like in like all of these theories hinge on like these beings using frequencies and signals to do mind control. I think that's just like a 1950s thing, but it's like, oh, we can explain it because they use signals and signals conquer all and they can make you do anything. Anyway, so they use these frequencies to guide us on the right path, while the serpent men try to usurp their power and lead us astray. And this leads the UTs to come down in a more physical form to better fit among us and have their frequencies sort of jive better, I guess. I don't know. But, Maggie, down in human form, they're more to human desires and they mate with neanderthal women and what happens is their bodies then become trapped on earth and they're unable to ascend back to their intangible forms now this doesn't really explain if the sex made it that way or the spiritual energy that's released into their offspring made the offspring unable to unmanifest back into godlike ultra terrestrials it's very unclear however these offspring became the first real humans like you and me Point is, we are pawns in a fight between beings we can't comprehend. How's that for supernatural horror? Oh my god. But like what's really upsetting is that these are like like superior beings like emotionally and intellectually, but what they're basically doing it's like the equivalent of someone fucking a sheep. Like these are like extremely primitive proto-humans. Like what do you even talk about? Like how do you fuck them? Like it's that that's the most unbelievable part to me that like someone that is like that like caliber, you know, like Giga Chad is going to fuck this Giga like yeah. proto human. Yeah. What the fuck? You know, there's there's an old saying, Maggie, any port in a storm, right? Uh, so chapter <laughs> twelve. We're almost there, Maggie. Chapter 12. Keel reinforces this observation that most cultures have some sort of curation myth where we are raised up from lowly creatures by god kings from the sky. So is that that crazy of a story? Again, was this used as a means for enabling subjugation? Gods mated with human women and made a royal bloodline of people who would become rulers and thus are also treated as gods. So Kiel tries to bring the mythos full circle in saying that the ultra terrestrials tried to become humans like us and we in fold have attempted to become them by making our great pyramids and stonehenges and making art depicting them and holding ceremonies and worshiping them. All right, chapter 13, Maggie, the one I've dubbed the sexy chapter. Keel flourishes about hypothetical cults conducting sensationalized orgies in black magic sex cults to contact elementals, UFOs, succubi, incubi, ultra-terrestrials, Atlanteans, you name it. He also spits some hot takes on voodoo and other religions exotic to the Eurocentric mind. He talks for a long time about gypsies, Romanies as we now say, and their religion being intermixed with black magic and how they don't use phones. And it just reminds me of some dracula fantasy like how he uses like gypsies for all his bidding because they're like the hired goons of fantasy it's like ah, i need something dirty done yeah ask that caravan of gypsies hurdy her so at this point like did we forget about wow like he hasn't mentioned them in eight chapters after like making every single chapter like based upon them and how their influence is seen in the strange phenomenon 
So the only interesting thought brought up in this chapter is that these beings maybe exist on a spectrum we can't see. Um, so the I'm autism gonna... spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I got a spectrum <laughs> for him. <laughs> so uh, mostly we can skip this chapter. He had a chapter in the last book, if you remember, about like there was like the hidden sexy chapter where like, yeah, there's black magic cults and they do sex to summon demons. And that was and the everything. chapter. Yeah, it was some chapter for some housewife to diddle herself to thinking about it. Really cool. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> chapter 14, uh, Maggie, which I think I had you look up a long time ago in the last one about VLF rays. This is a chapter all about mysterious radio broadcast and frequencies. So we've kind of covered oh, yeah. that before in the last one. So I'm going to skip that. Chapter 15, the 24th. Now, Kiel speaks about the frequency of strange occurrences that happen on the 24th of the month. Phenomenon in the sky, disappearances, reappearances, and maybe teleportation. All A lot of these incidents that were reported happen on the 24th of the month. So remember our story about the guy in ancient Japan that had been teleported several villages over and wound up naked? Or the guy yeah. in Ireland claiming a fairy took all the money from them and made them drunk, and that's why they've been missing for two weeks. So right, right. Uh, this this chapter, I think, is an open and shut case for alcohol just doing what it does. So <laughs> <laughs> Kiel also touches on mass disappearances like Roanoke, uh, the Pied Piper of Hamlin, where some dude rounded up 500 kids for like a child army, and they disappeared. Well, they most likely got captured by slavers. Kiel writes that over 50 U.S. pilots have disappeared and are lost their lives when pursuing UFO craft or strange aerial phenomenon, citing real Air Force records and the mysterious Flight 19, which vanished over the Bermuda Triangle. That's a real story. All right. Oh, my God. Chapter 16. Now, we can't have an occult book, Maggie, without a Nazi chapter. Now, oh, I God. personally think Kiel should have exited with the Serpent Men versus Ultra Terrestrial chapter. To me, I thought that was like the end of the book of the interesting things because the last few chapters have just like haven't really tied to any of the other topics too much. They've kind of been their own things. He hasn't talked about WoW in a while. And, but of course, we know that. Uh, World War II is one of the two personalities men can have after they <laughs> turn 40. So uh, Kiel accounts the occult origins of the Thule Society and Hitler's xenophobic ideologies spurned on by these beliefs in Teutonic gods. Now, he does credit war for us accelerating inventions in scientists, but... Uh, not only are Nazis interested in the occult, also today's youth, and they're becoming increasingly invested or at least exposed to far more of the occult. And man, if Kiel could see us now, <laughs> I mean, this was the 70s. He's pointing the finger at new age movements and hippies. And it's like, uh, we've, yeah, we've gotten a lot worse since. Um, he also talks about the sexual revolution and they're leading up to some new cosmic change or movement. And uh, this, of course, we know was AIDS. In his final thoughts, Kiel brings back the notion of wow, looking over us in amusement, ultra terrestrials hiding as men in black and setting us against each other. Wait, I, I thought the ultra terrestrials were the good guys, Maggie. And what will people millions of years in the future think of our imprint if there's any left to be found? A truly solemn thought. Uh, and that's the end of the book. So wow. my my closing thoughts and conclusions of this. So overall, like I said in the beginning, I felt 
like this book was much more organized in its stream of theories and phenomenon. And Kiel does a better job relating the topics to one another in a more cohesive narrative. Uh, and there are far more specific incidents cited with dates and names and experiencers and researchers and scientists who are all real people and not fictional characters. And when he does mention fictional characters or ideas, he clearly states them. However, my biggest gripe is the fluidity in which he discusses the ultra terrestrials and wow is like pick narrative. Are they the good guys? Are they the bad guys? And he just seems to waffle back and forth over the book on what their motivations are towards this. And I understand it's a transient nature to these topics in general because we simply don't know what their deal is. And they just exist as these series of strange incidents that no one can really grasp. But if that's the story we don't know, then you should just frame it as such. And I think the movie, The Mothman Prophecies, did a really good job at this angle. And one great quote I like is from a conversation between Richard Gere's character, John Klein, and Alan Bates' character, Alexander Leake. Now, both of these characters are different aspects of John Keel, but they're separate characters in the movie. But Leake is the experiencer author, uh, He's talking to Richard Gere, who's sort of like the investigator, and he says, you're more advanced than a cockroach. Have you ever tried explaining yourself to one of them? So anyway, what do you think of our haunted planet, Maggie? Oh, boy. This really, I mean, again, like it's like the eighth tower there's just so much in there he just cramps everything he could think of like once he he's just almost like he can't contain himself like he can't stay on topic i think it, like the red flag for that was when he just stopped like just completely forgot about wow and and just started to unload all sorts of stuff he could jam in there yeah do you feel like this was more concise and less rambly or do you think they were about the same amount i would say he started off with some level of conciseness but then like Oh, at least halfway through until the end. Like then it just became very much like the eighth tower where he was just throwing everything in a kitchen sink at you. Yeah. I think losing sight of the main framing narrative like he had about wow was just kind of like, well, maybe these things don't like exactly they're not things to be overseen and they're just independent phenomenon, but that seemed like the strongest beginning of the book that he's had as far as like using a framing device and having an antagonist or a protagonist. And when you lose it, it's just kind of like, well, what are we talking about now? Right. Like he doesn't even circle things back to wow at all for like multiple chapters. Yeah. And it's kind of unusual. Like as he names them, he names wow. But then, like, is WoW separate from Ultra Terrestrials, ultimately? Like, it's, that's kind of unclear, too. Like, is WoW a human organization? Like, nothing's clear to me about this. Yeah, he, that's definitely a good question to ask, too, that I had. Like, it, it's not, it seems to go back and forth between whether WoW is humans or WoW is Ultra Terrestrials and if they're separate. And, uh, which one is evil? Which one is good? Are they both good? Are they both evil? Or are they both something sort of in between? So it's very hard to say. And uh, it's definitely not fleshed out in either of these two books. Ugh. Well, wow. He, yeah, this is this guy is interesting. I, too, have mental illness. So I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, too, have mental illness. Well, anyway... 
that's all I got for us today, Maggie. I hope you enjoyed uh, this trip down the keel rabbit hole uh, once again. Hopefully we touched on some more funnier things. I know Mammoth Mounds, I'll be doing some more research on them later. Uh, <laughs> and uh, until next time, uh, we'll be seeing you. Uh, have a great Halloween. What are you going to be for Halloween, Maggie? This year, I'm, I don't think I'm dressing up this year, to be honest. I think I'm just going to be chill. What about you? Wow. Well, fine, Maggie. Maybe I'm not going to dress up this year either, and I'm just going to be chill. I don't know what I'm going to be. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very much on the struggle bus. I might re-wear my Ren Fair outfit. Or I was going to be the, that AI picture of that big dude in camo shorts kicking the gator. Oh, yeah, okay. But I don't know where I can get, like, a big stuffed gator like that. I was going to get have that, my camo shorts, and, like, a pizza box. But I kind of, like, don't want to walk around shirtless. So, anyway, I might get confused for a Bigfoot and shot. But uh, until next time, guys, keep it spooky. Have a good, safe holiday. Enjoy yourselves. And uh, watch out for the ultra terrestrials because they're trying to touch you in your sleep, I guess. I don't know. I hope so. All right. Have a, <laughs> have a good rest of your day. Bye. Bye, everyone.